We are in the middle of a series of messages where we are examining a few of the many things that Jesus came to do as we celebrate uh, his coming. Pastor John kicked us off a few weeks ago talking about the fact that Jesus came to be our king. He came to bring the kingdom of God uh, here to the earth. And then Sanjay picked it up from there and talked about Jesus came to make the impossible possible. And uh, we know and we thank God that we serve a God where there's no impossibility with him, that we can take whatever circumstances we face in life knowing that he has a solution. Today we want to talk about Jesus came to make disciples. And we want to take a look at the Great Commission. And he talks about it in two references in Scripture. First of all, in Mark chapter 16, and then we'll take a look at what he says in Matthew 28. But in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And so this is part of the Great Commission, where we are to go into all the world and to preach uh, the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. And God has gifted those of us in the body of Christ with the gift of evangelists, those who passionately share uh, Jesus Christ with others, and they see others coming to faith uh, through their testimony. And so we thank God for uh, this gift, and all of us are called to uh, share the good news of Christ to others. But the commission doesn't stop there. If you'll go to Matthew 28, he also says in Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So those who would make disciples are those who are interested in teaching people all that Jesus taught and uh, calling them to obey those commandments. And over the years, I've uh, visited churches um, and saw churches online uh, through the Internet. And it's interesting how a number of churches have as their discipleship program these catchy phrases. Uh, and oftentimes I've seen them alliter alliterated where you walk into a church and you see a big banner with their discipleship program in this nice alliterated uh, phrase. And what we want to discern as the body of believers is to recognize as what Jesus says, discipleship is not a program or a ministry with emphasis on community. Discipleship is total obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in verse 20 of Matthew 28. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the essence of discipleship. Now, if in the context of community and some of the programs that churches have, uh, they are teaching you 
what Jesus taught and calling you to obedience, then praise the Lord. That's discipleship. But where they have discipleship is their program and there's no teaching going on, but people are coming together uh, in fellowship and community and calling that discipleship. That is not discipleship. Discipleship is total obedience to the commands of Jesus. And a great starting point to look at what Jesus commanded is the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus has specific commands regarding things like anger and lusting after uh, women and divorce and lying and seeking the honor of, of uh, man and uh, things regarding money and loving our enemies. That's what Jesus says just in that sermon. And then if you read the apostles, uh, the apostle Paul teaches about uh, never pay back evil for evil, not grumbling or complaining about uh, circumstances in our lives, being subject to governing, governing authorities, uh, not to gossip and not to seek our own interests. And there's so much more that uh, Jesus commands us in the New Testament. So we want to first be disciples of Jesus Christ and then call others to follow the example that we set. And we would make a mistake if we call people to follow Jesus when we ourselves are not uh, doing that or at least seeking to do that. And that's what the Pharisees were good at. The Pharisees were good at uh, preaching something, preaching to the people, but not living that life themselves. And so we, won't, we don't want to be Pharisees in that sense. We want to follow Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so in Luke chapter 14, we're going to spend the rest of our time in this book. Luke chapter 14, we find the conditions of discipleship. It's very important that we understand what Jesus said about those who would come to follow him. And we find that in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 says, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So this is the first thing Jesus teaches about the first condition of discipleship. And when we read that, we think at a first reading, it sounds very harsh. Jesus is calling us to hate our mother and our father and our sister and brother and our wife and husband and, and, uh, and even our own life. And we say, boy, that sounds pretty harsh. Does Jesus literally mean that we are to hate the people that are most important to us in our lives? If you go to Matthew chapter 10, we get clarity on what Jesus meant by that statement. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So in Luke 14, Jesus is not saying literally that we should hate our father and mother and sister and brother. For he says in another passage that we should honor our father and mother. And so he's not saying that we should literally hate the people that are closest to us in our lives. 
but we are to love Jesus supremely. And that's what Jesus calls for. He wants us to love him supremely more than any other human relationship that we have. It's about having the right uh, attitude uh, as it relates to Jesus. Look in Luke chapter 8 for an example of how Jesus modeled this. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus says in verse 19, it says, And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. And so Jesus has expanded his family, not just to mean his earthly family, but all of those who would come to not only hear the word of God, but to do it. There's a detachment that Jesus uh, demonstrates, and we see a great picture of that in the book of John, if you'll turn there. John chapter 2, verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, remember, Jesus had lived at home with his parents until he was 30. It wasn't until he was 30 that he left home and moved to Capernaum. So Jesus, I'm sure as we all do, referred to his mother as mom or mommy or some motherly term of endearment. But as soon as his ministry starts, this is the first miracle that Jesus performs. And listen at how he refers to his mother. Jesus said, uh, she said to Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? Now, can you imagine how his mother felt to hear him refer to her in that language? Woman, after 30 years of raising him, I went from mommy to woman. It's because Jesus has detached himself from all earthly relationships It's not that he stopped loving her or respecting her or honoring her, but now he's all about fulfilling the work that God had given him to do. And the example and the lesson that we can learn is that as we seek to love Jesus supremely, we don't want to let those people who are closest to us influence us away from the things of God. We don't want that to happen. We can be in a family where no one is a Christian, we get saved, and we are seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, but everyone in our family is against that. And we have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, stand firm in our faith, even if it means that we're going to be alienated from those people who are closest to us. So if God has called us to do something, and either our mother or our father, our sister or our brother or spouse is against what God is calling us to do, we want to love them 
and respect them, but respectfully say, hey, I've got to do what God has called me to do and be willing to suffer whatever consequences comes with that. In Matthew chapter 4, we see how committed the disciples were when they were called into discipleship with Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Notice that there wasn't any hesitation. Jesus called them and immediately they responded. Verse 20, verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So James and John left their father in the boat to follow Jesus. That's the kind of allegiance that Jesus is looking for. People who will leave their parents, literally in this case, in the boat, mending their nets. Imagine how his dad felt. What am I? Chopped liver. I'm here, I've, I've raised these boys, and, and we're mending nets, and this person comes along and calls them, and they leave me in the boat. Jesus wants us to love him supremely above any earthly relationship. And oftentimes that can be tested when people who are closest to us are in some subtle way seeking to influence us away from what God is calling us to do. But we want to stand true to God's word and to God's will in our lives, even if it costs us in our significant relationships. Look at Psalm 20, Psalm 75 for a passage of scripture that really sums up what it sounds like and what it means to love Jesus supremely. Psalm 73, verse 25. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. The psalmist says, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. That's a a statement of pure worship. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing that I desire, no one that I desire on earth except you. You know, when, when oftentimes we talk about uh, the passing of our loved ones, uh, we talk in language where uh, we look forward to seeing them again in heaven. And there's nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord that for those uh, relatives of ours who have made Jesus Lord of their life, uh, that one day we're going to see them again in heaven. And, uh, and we talk about the reward that's awaiting us in heaven and the pearly gates and all of that. But the person who loves Jesus supremely, when they get to heaven, the first person that they want to see is Jesus. He's the one who paid the ultimate price to purchase our salvation so that we can inherit heaven. And besides you, it says, I desire nothing on earth. You know, there are times in our lives where we are hurt. People say things that 
uh, hurt us or do things that hurt us. And it's because there's something that we desire. We desire respect or we have some expectation. And when that isn't met, then we get hurt and we're angry. But the person who loves Jesus supremely has this attitude in their heart. Besides you, there's nothing that I desire on earth. I have no desire. Whether I have a lot of money or a little money, whether I have a big home or a little home, a job or no job, whatever it is, Lord, it doesn't matter as long as I have you. And that's the place of pure worship that Jesus is calling us to. We are called in Scripture the Bride of Christ. And we all know what it's like. For those of us who have been married or we've had boyfriends or girlfriends, we know how much we love that person, how much we think about them and and call them and talk to them on the phone. It's all about them. And if we go out on a date and, uh, and we can't take uh, a nice car, doesn't matter. I remember I took Shanice, uh, my wife, on a date, and we took the train in New York City. And I couldn't afford a cab or a nice, uh, uh, a nice car, but she didn't care that we took the subway uh, to go to a play on Broadway. It was all about being with me. And that's what Jesus... That's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants us to love him supremely. And whether we have a car, whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in life, it's not about those things. As long as I have Jesus, that's all that really matters. And so that's the first thing that Jesus calls us to in Luke chapter 14. The next thing that Jesus says verse 27 he says whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple Jesus says So Jesus is teaching us that in addition to loving him supremely, we have to die to our self-life. We have to die to our old sinful nature. And look in Luke chapter 9 for more clarity on this. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. Every single day we have to die to self. And the reason we have to die to self is because the self-life is the enemy of the Christ life. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 Paul writes, for the, self, for the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So in other words, our self-life and the Christ life can never coexist. They set themselves against each other. The flesh sets itself against the spirit and the spirit sets itself against the flesh. And so we have to practice each and every day to deny that self-will, that uh, flesh of ours, that old sinful nature. 
And it's unfortunate for us, but we all know it to be true that because of the sin that took place in the garden, we've all inherited this sinful nature. And that's what we have to battle each and every day. But praise God that you and I have been given the Holy Spirit to help us in our efforts to die to self. And so as an example, let's say that someone has said something very mean spirited to you or done something to deeply hurt you. Now, what does the flesh want to do? The first response of the flesh is to say something equally mean and hurtful. That's the response of the flesh. And what we want to do as followers of Jesus Christ is to recognize that that's what the flesh wants, but then deny that. Say, no, I can't do that. And so what does the spirit want? The spirit says that we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, in the in the flesh, we can't do that. The flesh wants to respond and say, hey, you say something bad to me. I'll say something bad to you. But the spirit says that we ought to forgive whatever they've done to hurt us and to pray for those who persecuted us. And when we do that, we find the narrow way that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. Go there with me. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are a few who find it. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that we can understand the way but never find it? We can have an intellectual understanding of the way to life. There are non-Christians who know what the way to life is, and they will hold us accountable to that. The reality is that we can understand the way but never find it ourselves. Jesus says only a few find it. And so the question becomes, well, how do I find this way? One of the ways that we can find it is dying to self. Death to self is how we find the narrow way. The flesh says, you hurt me, I want to hurt you. But the spirit says, pray for those who would hurt you and persecute you. And that is the narrow way. There's a street in Redwood City called Broadway. And it's interesting, as I thought about this, uh, the street named Broadway you find in cities all across this country. Uh, It's up in Oakland and in various cities around the country. And I've walked down Broadway and I've had dinner with Shanice on Broadway in Redwood City. It's a beautiful street. But spiritually speaking, we are to stay off of the Broadway because Broadway is a wide way that leads to destruction. Spiritually, we are to stay on the narrow way. And it's interesting that in America, there's not one street called Narrow Way. They're all called Broadway. And so, brothers and sisters, we want to be people who are constantly seeking to live and walk on the narrow way. This is the way that God has called us to. And Christians don't grow because they don't deny their self-will. Like eating food every day helps us to grow up as kids, naturally speaking. Every day, if we are to grow as Christians, we have to die to our self-nature. We have to crucify 
the uh, flesh. And this is what Paul testified about in his own life. In Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 20. I'm sorry, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. That's why I couldn't find it. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20. This is Paul's testimony. He's not teaching anything here. He's simply testifying to what has happened in his life through the power of the Spirit. He says in verse 20 of Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's his testimony. It is no longer I, Paul says, who lives, but Christ lives in me. We have that default position of the of the of our old self, our old nature. But if daily we keep crucifying it and putting it to death, guess what? We get to a place where we're living not from that default position, but from a new default position of seeking to do the will of God in our lives. And this is how Jesus lived his life each and every day. For 33 and a half years, he denied his self-will. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1, Peter writes, Therefore, Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. So when we think about Jesus suffering in the flesh, what's the first thing that comes to mind as we think about that? We think about the cross. Then the question becomes for us, well, is he calling us to suffer like Jesus did on the cross? The answer is no, not physically at least. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, there's a suffering that he endured for 33 and a half years. And that suffering was every day. He was tempted to follow his own will, but he denied it. And if at one point he followed his will, he would have not been the perfect sacrifice for our sins. It goes on to say in the rest of that verse, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. There was a suffering that Jesus endured for 33 and a half years during his life on this earth. He suffered physically for six hours on the cross, but for 33 and a half years, every day of his life, he was tempted to sin, he was tempted to follow his flesh, but he wasn't. But he didn't follow Uh, what his flesh was calling him to do. And so a good question to ask ourselves as we come down to the end of a new year is how well have I died to self this past year? How well, and faced with certain circumstances, things that are uh, challenging us, provoking us to live outside of God's will, how well have I died to self? Let's go back to Luke chapter 14 to look at the third and final condition that Jesus has. 
Verse 28 of Luke 14. Jesus says, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Verse 31. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. And so Jesus says that if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be his disciple, it's going to cost us in the same way that we sit down as we contemplate buying a house. We sit down and we check our our bank account and our investment accounts to see if we have enough money. Jesus is saying it's going to cost if we are seeking to follow him. And we all have heard stories of believers who have been estranged from their families. They've lost Uh, promotional opportunities on their jobs. They've even lost jobs because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And Jesus is teaching us here in verse 33. He says, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. He is teaching us that we must give up our attachment to all earthly possessions. Now, there's nothing wrong with us having earthly possessions, but they can't have us. And too often we feel like Uh, Everything that we have that we've bought with our own money that's in our home belongs to us. It's ours. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to always keep an eternal perspective on things and know that the things that we have are gifts that have been given to us by the Father. And to get that heavenly perspective, look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. In other words, everything that is belongs to the Lord. So when we meditate on that, what does that mean? That means our jobs and our income belongs to God. It means that whatever transportation we might have, cars, those belong to God. It means our wardrobes belong to God. Our food belongs to God. Our children belong to God. Everything that this earth contains belongs to God. So what does that make you and I? That makes us stewards. We're stewards. And a steward is one who administers something as an agent of someone else. So in other words, everything that we have, God has given us, but it's not ours. We are to administer it as his steward, as his agent. And we are called to be faithful over the things that God has given us. For a beautiful picture of what that looks like in the early church, turn to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2. The church is just forming. And it says in Acts 2, verse 32, and the congregation of those 
who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So the early church, they had unity among themselves, and they believed that nothing that belonged to them was their own, but everything was common property. And so whatever needs existed within that congregation were met by the resources that others in that church had. And so imagine all of us, a church of, let's say, 500 that are here this morning. Imagine if we had that same attitude where everything that we have, we don't consider our own, but we have given it up as common property. And so if someone needs this, there's someone in the body who can meet that need. And someone needs that, there's someone in the body who can meet that need. But too often, we've become very attached to our resources, to the things that God has given us. We can become downright stingy, and we, we resist the idea of, of giving money or giving some material resource to someone else, to another believer. You know, kids at a very young age are very good at practicing this. You know, you look at the little two and three-year-olds, and everything that they lay their hands on is mine, they say. Kids can go to somebody else's house, and they can grab somebody else's toy and say, that is mine, and believe it in their heart. Why? Because they touched it. They believe it's mine. And the reality is, as Christians, we can practice that same attitude where this is mine and we're reluctant. Our fists are closed tight and we're reluctant to release it and, uh, and seek to be a blessing to others. But Jesus taught it is better to give than to receive. And so we want to be brothers and sisters who practice not being attached to our earthly possessions, but looking for ways in which we can bless others with the things God has given us. I heard a preacher once say that we should wear this world as a loose garment. And I thought that really captures the essence of what Jesus is saying here. That whatever we have in this world, we don't wear it too tightly. We're not too attached to it. Uh, like uh, Job said in the Old Testament, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We're not too attached to anything. Our true home is in heaven. We can be attached to the things in heaven because that's our true home. But here on this earth, we wear everything loosely. The Lord can give it and the Lord can take it away. And we thank God for the things that he has given us. And so these are the three conditions that Jesus uh, calls us to as we consider walking and following him. And uh, these are the things that we want to meditate on and uh, seek to grow in as believers. To God be the glory.